Namaste, sir. Uh, I have two areas, two questions. I'll put it very briefly. One is that uh, yoga is now globally accepted. And yoga also has the origins in Patanjali Yoga Sutra, Vyasa's Bhashya. And so it has also a Sanskrit origin. So how do the Western Purvapakshis look at yoga? Number one. And how, how do the insider's approach should be in uh, taking the fight to the other uh, party? Second is about uh, the revival of Samskrita as a spoken tongue in India by organizations like Samskrita Bharati. So how, we, how, is, uh, how does the Westerners look at this? And then how do we go about this? These two. Both are excellent questions. Yoga has become a battle, battleground. Uh, more and more Westerners, first they studied in the 60s and 70s, they studied under Hindu gurus. But the Hindu gurus did not convert them and did not teach the Hindu links in order to make it easy to understand, popularize, they decoupled it with, from Hinduism and taught it like exercise and like, you know. So they ignored the teachings which are linked with the higher states of consciousness, with even in Patanjali, the higher states of consciousness, the Samadhi and so on. And it was mainly Hatha Yoga, that type of thing, and some breathing, Pranayama and so on. So what has happened is, the yoga movement in the United States has taken what I call a U-turn, which means starting with the Hindu context, they moved, they decontextualized, removed the Hindu context and turned it into secular yoga. And this secular yoga is now being recontextualized in Christianity. There is a thriving movement called Christian yoga, huge movement called Christian yoga. Several hundred centers of Christian yoga exist. And they are saying that this is Christ chakra. And Surya Namaskar is translated as Sun Salutation, not S-U-N, but S-O-N, Son of God, Jesus, Jesus as Son of God. So it's Salutation, Surya Namaskar is Sun Salutation, where S-O-N Salutation is Salutation to the Son of God, to Jesus. So they've come up with their own symbolism and they've come up with their own history. According to them, yoga was plagiarized by BKS Iyengar and his guru from the YMCA. Because YMCA was teaching exercise and people like Swami Vivekananda and all these other BKS Iyengar and his guru felt that Indians were weak physically and we needed to exercise. But we, they wanted to show that this is part of our own heritage. So they came up with yoga. And this yoga was kind of using Sanskrit vocabulary to capture and digest Western exercise and call it yoga. Of course, this is rubbish because you see Hatha Yoga postures in early texts, hundreds of years earlier. You even see yogis in the Harappan civilization in, you know, thousands of years ago. But this rewriting the history of yoga as something kind of a Western influence and decoupling it from Hinduism is a very big topic. Dissertations are being written, books are being written, conferences are being held. And people who say that this is a Hindu system are being called chauvinist, saffron, uh, cultural, you know, supremacy, all kind of abuses being given to those who are now trying to claim yoga back because it may be too late. We have lost it. So now we have to fight it in a very aggressive way, okay, which we will and we have to. So this is going on and I'm very glad you raised this issue. The second is uh, 
uh, spoke oral tradition. The book I am writing, written, this battle for Sanskrit, the main Purva Pakshin that I am criticizing in this book is very much against the oral tradition. He says that history really begins with writing. So whatever happened before cannot be considered history. So by doing that, he's wiped out so much of our history because it's oral. He says, I have no proof. I return is all I can see. And therefore, since I can't tell you who oral, who, because we weren't there, we can't prove any oral stuff. So we, we dismiss it. And so, and he also says that this oral tradition before writing was secretive and allowed Brahmins to keep their hegemony, their superiority uh, over other people. They could oppress other people. It was very uncreative. There was no innovation possible. Now, this is all wrong because there's an oral tradition they had produced so much astronomy, kept improving that astronomy, so much mathematics, medicine, so much, uh, uh, you know, so many uh, grammars. So, the orality, oral, does not mean lack of creativity. It's not some fixed tape recorder going on playing like they want it to sound. And then the revival of the oral tradition, they consider to be dangerous because they feel it's being done by these new, by these saffron political parties. So the old oral tradition is being dismissed as not being, vibe, not being important to study. And the new revival is being dismissed as sort of a political movement, political movement. So that's, uh, that's the state of affairs. My job is I can't say they are wrong or whatever. I can say this is their position and the insider position is different. That's what I'm saying. This is what the outsiders are saying. This is what the insider position would be. And let there be discussion and debate in a friendly way. Thank you. Good evening, Rajivji. I have, I'm honored to give, get your thoughts. Um, I'm very honored to, if I can get some of your thoughts. Um, I have not read all your books, but I'm very familiar. Uh, and um, I that uh, when we are giving, uh, doing a Purva Paksh or Uttar Paksh, uh, we face a certain unique problem um, because our thing is not based on intellect, it's more based on perception and so on and I have not perceived anything. So how do I talk about these things? Um, when I lived in the West, in England, I used to attend various societies and so on and they will talk all sorts of things. You know, they will talk of uh, machines taking over people and singularity and all sorts of things. But I was, and there I was facing um, representing Indian thought. I was facing trouble. Nobody was prepared to listen. So I thought, what is it? And then I later realized that here we are always talking of things that is way beyond us. You know, so how can I talk about concepts which I have not perceived? You know, I understand your but question. I have a small uh, comment regarding this that I had my own, which is this that they in the scientific world they have a notion called integrity scientific integrity which that way i feel we also I could define a notion called spiritual integrity which to me is don't talk about things you have not perceived as though you have perceived it you know and um, um, when you're talking about things that are beyond you just quote that they say so they say the true nature of man is supposed to be pure consciousness. Don't say that it is because I don't know it is. You know? I think what you are saying is that our tradition relies a lot on experiential 
And if you haven't experienced, how can you defend the tradition? That's really your question. If I don't have it. If you don't, that's what I'm saying. If you haven't had the experience, how do you defend the tradition? That's what, I, what I, I think you're saying. So, part of the claims are experiential, but there's also logic like history. Like we, we can have astronomical dating of a text. If a certain text refers to the sky with a certain configuration, we know through software when that happened. So it's not about experiencing anything. We can say that this Ramayana, this particular verse in the Ramayana occurred at such and such year. That nothing to do with inner experience. So there are certain objective facts like that where we can refute the other Purpakshin based on logic. Also, we can, uh, when they stir up that this uh, Sanskrit died thousand years ago, we can respond by showing that after that supposed death, lot of new products, new literature came. That doesn't require me to have adhyatmic experience to show that new texts came after supposedly it died. Another claim they make is that Ramayana was not popular among people until the Turkish invasion and then the Hindu kings needed a story to unify them against the enemy. So the, the Hindu kings boosted the public, the public stature of Ramayana in order to have a narrative that would go against the Muslims. Now this is an interpretation they have. But I can show, and I've shown in this book, that long before the Turkish, there were Ram temples, there was Ram Leela. So the prevalence of Ramayan is not as a reaction to the, the, the Turkish invasion. Now this response, this Uttarpaksh I'm giving is not based on a dhyatmic state. It is, I'm so it depends on what claim you are refuting. If it is a claim about a higher state of consciousness, then to refute it, we need that higher state of consciousness. But a lot of the claims, those guys don't have any higher state of consciousness. They are making claims about history, about political motives, about social oppression. They're not making claims about consciousness. So they're making sociological claims, social sciences claims, political science claims, and therefore we can counter it at the same level. So a large part of the Purva Paksha, Uttar Paksha is not about consciousness studies. So the issue of, you know, there's modern consciousness studies, that's a whole different domain. In that domain, a lot of correlation of yogis and meditators, a lot of correlation is being measured with brain states, neurological states being done right now. So the, the proof and negation of claims is happening in a very scientific way with empirical measurements and our tradition is coming out very good. In fact, a lot of the new ideas in neuroscience are coming out of the study of meditators. But that's a different, that's a whole separate book than what I have written here. Uh, my name is Janak Raman. Namaste Swamiji's. I want to ask only one question. In our uh, Indian history, most of the students, they are studying the age of uh, Adi Shankara, uh, that is only in AD, about the 7th century or uh, something. But according to the maths, uh, it is uh, BC. Similarly, in the Guru Parambara Prabhava, the age of the Alvars, Namma Alvar, Bodhat Alvar, Paihai Alvar, and so many Alvars, it is uh, more than uh, 3,000 or 4,000 years. But in, an, in our Indian history, we are studying it is in the 7th or 8th century. Similarly, the age of the Thirumular, 
most ancient uh, Tamil scholar is more than uh, 3,000 years or 4,000 years according to the Puranas. But in, in, in our Indian history we are studying, uh, it's only in the 3rd or 4th century. Which we have to believe that we, please, please kindly. Thank you. Similarly, I understand. In, in, in I, no, no, I, no, no, I understand. You can keep giving more examples, but I get the point. I get the point. I will answer it. Please. Okay. Dating, dating the Indian texts of all kinds is a thriving and, and vibrant field called chronology. The chronology of Sanskrit, Tamil, various texts. There's a field like that. The chronologies that people accept in the world are established by colonial orientalists. And we accepted those. Now there is a trend to challenge. So different people are challenging different dates. So there is one Ashoka Kluchkar who's challenging the date of the Buddha. There are people in India who are challenging the date of Adi Shankara. There are people who are challenging the date of the Ramayana, Valmiki Ramayana, making it much older. Now, there is a project in Delhi University Sanskrit department. If you are interested, contact them. Ravesh Bhardwaj, great scholar, chair of that department. He is leading in his department a project on the chronology of ancient Indian texts and events. So if I, I would, rather than giving you my, I could be secondhand information, because I would only tell you what I know from them. They are doing the latest project funded by the Indian Council of Historical Research. It started, I think, a year or, year or two ago under uh, the new government. They are doing this project to come up with the best available date for major Indian texts. So I think that's the best place to go. Thank you. Um, my question is that whenever we are talking about Sanskrit, basically we talk about literature, philosophy, spirituality, etc. Uh, but there is uh, more to do in Sanskrit as far as the STEM disciplines are concerned. That is science, technology, engineering and mathematics. So is it not important for us to do the knowledge mining and bring out the old wisdom to establish its relevance to the modern system of knowledge. Yes, I And is it not I mean, important for us to do the interdisciplinary research? Yes. That is Sanskrit and music, Sanskrit and mathematics, etc. Absolutely. And especially the NASA scientist who has now brought out that particular article has created some sort of interest amongst Indians, and especially the 102nd uh, Indian Science Congress, which was held in Mumbai University, even though there was some controversy related to the surgery and uh, aerospace and other things. But otherwise, they say that the sixth uh, generation computer will be out in 2025, and the seventh generation computer will be out in 2034, when they are going to, um, you know, the, uh, the entire uh, system will be manipulated by artificial intelligence. Therefore, is it not important for us for, to study the STEM disciplines in Sanskrit and do interdisciplinary research for the benefit of the future generation. I understand. I understand the question. It's a wonderful question. This is very close to my heart. Uh, I think, in fact, the revival of Sanskrit and Sanskrit texts should not be just a separate department. They should also introduce this in the mathematics department courses or in the history of mathematics as done in Sanskrit. They should introduce in medicine medical institutes, they should teach Sanskrit texts and so on. So Sanskrit texts as a way of thinking, as a deeper state of consciousness where you can get insight into science, 
than just the logical level. These ought to be introduced in the various disciplines. In fact, if somebody asks me what's the contemporary application for the revival of Sanskrit, I would say it is not ordering a cup of chai or taxi or turning on a light or something. More, those are nice to learn as a simple thing to popularize. But the real asset, intellectual property asset we have is that Sanskrit and its meditative uses in mantra as a way of thinking, as a creativity can lead us to new discoveries. So we have to first understand the existing, what, what the texts are saying about science, technology, mathematics, you know, all of that. We have to understand that, rediscover that, let mathematicians discover Sanskrit, let physicists discover Sanskrit and so on. Medical people should. And then let R&D take it forward. It should not just be going back. It should be using it as a way of thinking and taking us forward. Now this is something we have to do. But this is not happening enough. This I, don't, I see science and Sanskrit talking about nostalgia about the past. Now I would like people to take it forward. And this requires serious funding, serious brains to enter the field. But I agree with you. My name is Ravindran. And um, I've, been, I've read your books. I've been in touch with you in some ways. You made some points uh, in passing. My focus area is only science. And your focus area is science. Uh, uh, basically, uh, how Ramanujan saw every equation has a relationship with the divine. With goddess. Goddess huh? uh, Ramakal. Otherwise, nothing else. And he was the only scientist or mathematician that I know who related, as you pointed out, as Krishna says, Vyavarika to Paramarthika, at least in modern terms. And uh, that is the kind of science that we need to pursue. Amazing, correct. And, uh, and that has to be the inspiration. Shouldn't we be pursuing this in a very, very big way? Yes. And I know of one person who has been doing it. I have been in touch with you on that matter. And that is the kind of thing that we should be doing. Should we do it? And you know, I really, really like to hear somebody say that because this is ultimately all I want to do. This is my, everything is just a way to clear the way. Everything is to clear the way so this first? can happen. I just make one comment on this. Sir, the situation is perfect because you might be knowing in quantum physics, they come to a complete dead end. Yeah. That, that they cannot predict the next state, the entirety of the state. The material science is completely at a dead end. Ultimately, it's only technology that is working. That's why everything is getting converted into big data. So here is an opportune moment to fund this activity to come off from this. Yeah, I think that uh, we could be creating the next huge breakthrough in fundamental science. Fundamental science. Like relativity was a breakthrough, like quantum physics was a breakthrough. And I agree with him, the next huge breakthroughs could be from our tradition. Should be. Should be. But the problem is, Westerners with limited appropriation here, there, there, are busy appropriating, repackaging it, recharacterizing it in their own framework and getting, getting big recognition. And our people are sort of not involved. But uh, they are not uh, coming to the divine answer. They are not coming to the divine Therefore, answer. they will never be able to come to the science which is an eternal truth in that perspective. They are smarter than that. As the science requires them to do that, they will reinvent Christianity to make it seem like that. Leave aside Christianity. Huh. Christianity is nowhere. No, no, I'm telling you. Yeah. Because the amount of 
repackaging, reinventing Christianity to fit meditation, to fit higher states of consciousness that is currently going on is amazing. Because project started, Mind Life Institute, which is a collaboration between the top scientists in the West and Dalai Lama. So they start studying how to fit Madhyamika Buddhism and consciousness and all that. And they're having these meetings every year. They've had 20, 30 meetings. And the Buddhists are not getting the value. They're giving the value. And they're being given a lot of respect and honor. They're poor, too poor to be able to, yes. to match the Westerners. The Westerners sucking that knowledge, yes. both in theory and empirical measurements on meditators. All this has fed neuroscience. And these neuroscientists are now about to get some Nobel Prizes for major breakthroughs in the way the mind works. So the theories of consciousness and mind moving way ahead of what material science, material atheistic science could achieve. And then there is a huge project by Templeton Foundation called Science and Religion, which really means Christianity. And they are giving lip service to other religions. I was involved with those guys help, you know, until I realized what they're doing and then I dissociated. They are basically taking this cutting-edge Hindu-Buddhist contribution to neuroscience and cognitive science and then finding ways of fitting it into Christianity. Same problems are even in science. Indians don't study the Western philosophy of science. So therefore we don't do the Puropaksha of this philosophy yes. of science yes. from our perspective. Yes. That's the real you problem. See, you see, he's used a very interesting term, philosophy of science. When we say we had scientific knowledge, actually it was philosophy of science. Yes. Actually it was philosophy of science. There is a difference between philosophy of science and science. Usually there is a philosophical new idea and then the scientist has to turn it into mathematics, quantify it. Like for instance, Vivekananda and Tesla. Vivekananda was teaching Tesla that matter and energy are equivalent. Matter and energy are equivalent. But he didn't have, we, we did not have E equals MC square to quantify that. Okay. So, from this philosophy of science, later the Westerners developed actual science. So, we have to realize that philosophy of science does not get you awards and Nobel Prizes and patents. When you turn it into science, then you do. And then the, when you turn that science into technology, you get patents and you make billionaires. So we must also learn to take our philosophy of science beyond just philosophy of science into actual science and into actual technology Absolutely. and not just be happy teaching it to some Westerner who comes and gives us some token recognition and we give and we very proud that he's given us some importance. That's this is our inferiority complex. Thank you so much. Pranam sir, uh, is there any difference between uh, Adi Shankara's uh, Adi Shankaracharya's Advedam and uh, Swami Vivekananda's Advedam. You have to speak, I couldn't understand. Difference between? Is there any difference between Swami Vivekananda's Advedam's philosophy and Adi Shankara's philosophy? Is Swami Vivekananda's updated version of uh, Adi Shankara? Um, I, don't, I didn't understand. So, you have to speak slowly and tell me. Yeah. You, he just speak? wants to know, are there differences between Adi Shankara's Advaita philosophy and Swami Vivekananda's Advaita philosophy. Okay. That's question one. Let me answer that. I want you to read my book Indra's Net. Can you... I'm answering your question. I wrote a whole book called Indra's Net just to answer that question. It's a 400 page book, 400 and some page book. I think we have copies available outside. Basically, the allegation made was that 
Swami Vivekananda did not understand Vedanta and got ideas from Christianity. Got ideas and turned came up with Raj Yoga. Got ideas of work ethic and turned it into Karma Yoga. And got ideas of devotion and turned it into Bhakti Yoga. These allegations are made that he manufactured a religion and called it Hinduism just to give us national pride. Okay, and that this is in contradiction to uh, Adi Shankara's ideas. I have given a long argument that he is basically reinterpreted. It is not like he invented something from scratch. He reinterpreted these traditions and the dichotomy, the the subtle differences between Swami Vivekananda and Adi Shankara were already there in the Shingeri Math itself. Even after Adi Shankara, his own followers came up with new interpretations. So it is not Vivekananda who this who kind of made a, a new thing. Uh, this uh, evolution of Vedanta and even evolution of Advaita Vedanta has been going on with the Shingeri Math. It has to do with whether uh, whether Nididhyasanam, which is the Shankara method of uh, of moksha, uh, whether what is it the relationship between Nididhyasanam and yoga? That is really the crux. It's a very complex philosophical issue. Please look at it in Indra's net, and you'll see a detailed explanation. Uh, Osho like person, huh? Osho says, Osho. Osho says, Vivekananda is a politician, uh, he's not a realized soul. I didn't hear it. What Osho says? Osho says, Vivekananda is a politician. He's not a realized soul. Okay. Uh, how uh, we, as a Hindu, how we see Vivekananda? Okay. Osho is entitled to his position. He's entitled to it. I see Swami Vivekananda as one of the most profound enlightened beings in, the, in modern times because one could not have done so much at such a young age. One could not have just dreamt up so much. You know, I, I, I don't buy Osho's idea on Swami Vivekananda. I like Osho for many other things. I like his meditations. I actually learned a lot from his meditations and I like some of his discourses, but I don't necessarily agree with him on everything. So I don't agree with him on Swami Vivekananda at all. To me, Swami Vivekananda is one of the greatest giants we've had in our Hindu culture. Namaste sir, my name is Venkat Raman. Um, uh, in your lecture you had mentioned that uh, countries like Russia and China, Japan specialize on their language for their education to bring them up. And you had mentioned the main point was to bring up Sanskrit like that in our Indian culture, which was there once but now it has dropped because of Oxford, Cambridge coming in more into the education. How can we push Sanskrit? I didn't get the point. How can we push Sanskrit in this modern world? Okay. So join Sanskrit Bharati and their spoken Sanskrit I think is a good program. I'm very impressed. I, I, I'm aligned with them. I'm very grateful to them. They've helped me a lot in this book. In this book, even before it came out, they helped me a lot. Uh, join them. Then as far as the, the intellectual argumentation is concerned, I would say I, I need to work with Sanskrit universities, traditional Sanskrit universities. Some people here are helping me uh, put together some projects and programs to revive that. So the revival is both as an oral tradition, as a tradition of learning and scholarship. And then Sanskriti includes Jyotish, it includes architecture, it includes Bharatnatyam, it includes Ayurveda. All Sanskrit is encoded in all these knowledge systems. 
So as these get revived, which they are, Sanskrit also gets revived. Let's Thank hope you. for it, sir. Thank you. Amand, I have one question. When we talk about the home team and when we talk about how we have to, you know, take hold of the Indic narrative and handle it, one thing that I notice is you need a scholarship or an intellectual backing to be recognized in journals and other places. And for that to happen, those centers are controlled primarily outside of India. So how do people who are interested in the Indic narrative and creating it from the traditional point of view get the academic credentials or the adhikaritwa to actually contribute to work? Excellent point. It's a chicken and egg. It's a chicken and egg. Uh, it's like you, there is, in the TV industry, there is content and then there's the channel of distribution. So if people control the channel of distribution, they will not allow our content. And what do we do if we want new content? It won't be allowed. So in, in the argument you've given, the new intellectual content is not being allowed in the old journals and conferences unless it conforms. And you will not be able to write a PhD in a university of that kind unless you are on their wavelength to some extent. Maybe you can say certain things but not beyond a certain point. So if I have innovative content and the channels don't accept it, I have to create my own channel. We have to create media channels, we have to create academic journal channels, academic conferences and that is what the government should be doing. They should be creating, uh, rather than funding foreign Indology, and rather than funding foreign guys and enhancing their power even more, what they ought to be doing is creating an annual India, Indian Indology conference in India, creating a huge journal of Indology in India with eminent Indian, Indian devotees of various traditions. People involved in the practice of those traditions, they should be given the funds to have world-class journals, not the people in Western Indology. And we should create a university like Nalanda. They revived Nalanda, gave it to uh, Amartya Sen, and he was basically reviving a very, he was creating a very secular, atheist, left-wing uh, social sciences to bash our tradition in the name of uh, Nalanda. That's as ridiculous as giving the Adi Shankara legacy to some, uh, you know, Charvaks. It's completely ridiculous. Yet it was done. So we need to bring our dharmic ideas of higher learning back in India under the control and we need to have a organization where Ramakrishna Mission has a member, some Peetams have a member, various other sampradayas and lineages have an appointment. So this kind of a council, this kind of a, a, a committee or trust, uh, you know, with this kind of a governing body where our internal mechanism, uh, the adhikaris, are represented and then we are doing Indology in that way. That is how I would go about it. It needs big money and the government ought to be doing this. Just one follow-up question, sir. As a common person who cannot exactly do all of this now and as a person who is interested in you know, defending Indic scholarship, where do I get started? Well, it depends on if you are a common person with money to give, you can write us a check. Uh, we are always happy to do that too. We are going to organize India uh, traditional scholars organization in between Karnataka and Ch Tamil Nadu and they'll need funding, they'll need conferences, they we, we want every three, four months an event, a meeting. So we need some resources for that. If you are uh, not in, in that mode, uh, if you are somebody who's able to take the knowledge we are producing like I'm producing 
and turn it into blogs, turn it into videos, turn it into documentaries, turn it into user-friendly material, then that's something you could do. So I did a workshop in Bangalore, we had 83 people, how to be an intellectual Kshatriya, that was the purpose. And I gave them projects for my book, saying, okay, I have all these things identified, each of you, you make groups, so six groups were made voluntarily, I left the room and they made their own groups and each group came up with a work plan of what they will do based on this book. So if, uh, if you find enough people interested in Chennai, you call me back, I'll do a workshop on how to be an intellectual Kshatriya and we could start one group here. The last question. Namaste Rajivji. Namaste Rajivji, welcome to Chennai. So my question is, um, maybe I'll just start uh, uh, to say that your works have been a true inspiration for many of us here, uh, ever since the Invading Sacred and Breaking India book uh, that you have written. Um, I was a bit perplexed uh, when you also mentioned that our present government is thinking of uh, funding Western Indologists. I am very surprised, I just heard it. Yeah. In this trip I heard it. Okay. So my question is, uh, did we outsource our Adhikar to the, uh, the left-wing left Marxists? Who is really controlling our government? I mean, if you can inspire many of us and we understand the problem that we are facing, be it digestion or be it U-turn, be it Western people taking our ideas and knowledge and repacking them back here, why don't our political executives, why don't they understand this? Or is it some kind of inferiority complex or some See, influence the, the, they have? The strange thing is I have had a huge influence on young people like this. And many of them are in lower middle level rank in the Hindu organizations. Many of them are volunteers, either in the spiritual side or political side. But I haven't had connection with the top guys. I haven't. And so they heard of me. They haven't invited me. I don't self-invite myself. As and when invited, I'll, I go. But I got a lot of invites here from Sanskrit Bharati, from Yuv Brigade, you know, things like that. And I'm very happy. So, but I don't have access to the real decision makers, except symbolically a little bit, you know, like that. I'm not consulted, I'm not utilized in terms of my knowledge, what I could do for them. And I'm not looking for money, I'm not looking for anything for myself. I would just like to utilize these ideas. My concern is that the new regime is being heavily infiltrated by the wrong kind of people through intermediaries because they're very sophisticated. I've been to meetings where they're saying now we have to accept this new government rather than fighting them and just infiltrate. And so they're very sophisticated, they know how to do that. They've done it all over the world. They've been doing it for centuries. So the people who come in to do this are so sophisticated, so smooth and they're Hindus also, some of them compromised. So this is what's going on. But I don't know what to do unless, I mean, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. The good news is, the spiritual leaders are so interested in my message. For the Swami Dhenan Saraswati, always we were connected. I got called by several Chinmaya Mission people. Swami is in the US. Now I'm going to Bombay. Chinmaya Mission is hosting this event. Mata Amritanand Mai's university has called me several times. Art of Living going to launch my this book in Bangalore tomorrow. And so on. More and more spiritual organizations, Ramakrishna Mission, I'm so happy that, uh, that, and I want to cultivate this more and more. So I feel that this, in the spiritual organizations, my access to the top is expanding. 
because they're understanding that there is a need for more than just teaching the adhyatmic side. You have to teach what's happening in the Kurukshetra. But in the political domain of Hinduism, I think they're very busy in their own world, not so open to an outsider like me, and uh, more tendency for their people to quickly copy an idea here and there and quote it inside and become very important. But without the tapasya, without the deep knowledge, it's only a superficial understanding and it's not good enough. Sometimes it's even misleading. But I don't want to pick a fight or argument. I, I just let it go and when the time comes, if the time comes, I'll be there. If it doesn't come, I'm doing my job anyway. I'm doing it as my swadharma and as long as I'm doing it as my swadharma, I'm happy. And if it satisfies somebody and they want me to help them out, I'm available.